the way we do things in Judaism is also, there are things that you can glean. For instance, when we were talking about last week in Kiddushim, talking about the forbidden relationships, the relationships that cause the people of the nations to be spewed out of the land of Israel. Here you get delineations of what is forbidden to the people of Israel, what is forbidden to the people of the nations. And you also understand that there was a punishment that came on the people who lived in the land of Israel that even though it was forbidden, these things are forbidden, it does not come on the people the same punishments may not come on people living in the rest of the world. So, people might have gotten the idea that it wasn't forbidden to people in the rest of the world. And that's not true. It's just that in the land of Israel, there was a special status. That the land of Israel has a special status. It does not mean that if the people committed these sins outside the land, that it was okay. God forbid it just meant that they weren't going to receive the same kind of punishment as they would inside the land of Israel. But when we would read, for these things the nations are spewed out, we get an idea of those things that Hashem is saying are forbidden to all people. Just a minute, I'm going to turn on the fan because it's a little bit warm in here. So you might have some background noise of the fan, but it's really too warm for me to sit in this closed room without the fan on. There's another idea, too. The idea of clean and unclean. And you should know that for non-Jewish people, they would never be in the category of ritually unclean. So when we read about Tameh, which means unclean, this is only the Jewish people. Non-Jewish people don't have that category because it had to do with um, ritual, sacred ritual. So, it's just an interesting way that we have to look at reading of the Torah. That there are laws that apply to Israel and there are laws that apply to the other people of the world doesn't mean that the other people of the world are not as good. I mean, some people make the mistake. And when we read the book of Vaikra, Deuteronomy, I mean Leviticus, you can really see how there are laws for the priesthood and there are laws for the people of Israel, the rest of the people of Israel. And it doesn't mean that the rest of the people of Israel are not as good as the priest. All it means is they're in a different category. And we have to bear that in mind that the Torah is not a book that casts aspersions on a group of people as being inferior. It is not a book that encourages people to be prejudiced against other people. And so sometimes people misunderstand when they read the Torah. And then they read those things in. And that is not what the Torah is saying. But 
at the same time, we have to understand that there are certain laws that apply to certain groups of people. And we see this very, very clearly in this book of the Torah. And that's why it's, I think it's a really a good thing for B'nai Noach to read, to study this book, even though a lot of it won't apply to B'nai Noach. Because here you can see the delineations, the laws that apply to one group, but not another group. The laws that apply to the priesthood, but not to the rest of the people. And then within the priesthood, you know, there are laws that apply to the Levites, there are laws that apply to the priests, and there are some laws that apply only to the high priests. Does that mean that each one of these is, one of them is better than the other? No, of course not. What it does mean is that Hashem is speaking to this person who has this role in the world, and these are his requirements for being in that role. So we need to remember that when we read the Torah, so that we don't read into it something that's not there. And a lot of times people will come with their preconceived ideas when they read the Torah, and they think that it's saying something that it isn't. I just wanted to preface all of this to set before we get started. Now, the book of Amor speaks a lot about, I mean, the Parsha Amor speaks a lot about the priests, the Kohenim. Now, you'll see on the whiteboard there is a, an outline. And remember when I first started doing these series of classes, I said that I was going to ask each of you to write an outline of the Parsha. Now, if you were in my classes before, you would see that I would write these really elaborate outlines. The, book, the one you see here on the whiteboard is very, very simple. It's only hitting the high points. So you can start with something really simple. And then you can build on that. And that's a good way to study the Torah, so that you get organized. So here we are in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 1. And we go through chapter 24, verse 23. So let's get started. And the first part is going to be the law of a Kohen. And a Kohen, Kohen is priest in Hebrew. And God said to Moshe, Now declare this to the priests, the sons of Aaron. Say to them, He may not defile himself for any person among his people, only for his spouse who is close to him, for his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother, and also for his virgin sister, who is still close to him, who has not yet belonged to a man. For her he has to defile himself. A married man must not defile himself among his people for a marriage that was a profanation for him. They shall not make a bald spot on their they shall not make a bald spot on their head, nor shave off the corners of their beard, and they shall not make a wound in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God, and shall not profane the name of their God, for what they bring near becomes an offering of their God by being given over to fire of God. 
Therefore, they themselves are to be a sanctuary. And this is talking about the priesthood. The priesthoods are sanctified. They shall not marry a harlot or a profaned woman. And they shall not marry a woman who has been who has divorced by her husband. For it, the tribe of Aaron, is holy to its God. And you shall exhort him to be holy. For it is the offering of your God that he brings near. You shall be holy also to you. For I, God, who summons you to holiness, am holy. And if the daughter of a man who is a priest profanes herself by acting the harlot, she profanes her father, and she shall be burned. So there's a lot here in the first nine verses. First of all, the Kohanim were not allowed to become Tameh, which is defiled, by contact with the dead. Now, the rest of the people of Israel, of course, are commanded that this is a, a great mitzvah to accompany a buyer, to accompany the dead to burial. It's a great mitzvah. But the Kohanim are not allowed to do this. The Kohanim are not allowed to visit the graves of even the sages of Israel. They're not allowed to do that because they cannot go into cemeteries. The rest of the people of Israel can do this. So they have a different set of laws. They're not to allow themselves to become Tameh. Now, there were exceptions, of course. The priests were allowed to to become unclean, to be exposed to the dead, for certain people, for their parents, for their close relatives, for their parents, for their children, for the son, and for the daughter, and for the brother, and for his sister if she was unmarried, she had not ever been married. For these, he was not only allowed to become Tameh, he was commanded. He had to become Tameh for these people because it was a kindness that he's commanded to do. However, the Kohen is warned that if he does have to become Tameh because of one of his relatives, then there's a good lesson here. That he is not allowed to say, since I'm already impure because of my father or mother or something, then I will go bury someone else. He's not allowed to do that. And this is a nice lesson for us because it's like, if we think about it in this way, we think, well, I've already sinned, and so I'm already guilty. I can just go off and do something else. This is a good example of how that is just not acceptable. It's just not acceptable in the eyes of Hashem. And we go on. About the ones that the Kohen is not allowed to marry. And I want us to understand this, understand this very clearly, because you can see 
that here, again, we're seeing how Hashem separates. And then this is the meaning of the word holy. He separates. Sanctification. The separation. So Kohen was not allowed to become Tamei. He was not allowed to be exposed to the dead except for the closest relatives. He was also not allowed to marry the following women. He could not marry a woman who was called Halala. This is a woman who is the daughter of a Kohen, but she's born of a forbidden union. Now, there is a difference between Halala and Mamzer. These are two terms that are legal terms. Mamzer is a forbidden union as in adultery. A, for, a union that is forbidden to everyone. There, this Halala is not a mamzer. A Halala is a, pers- a woman who was born to a Kohen who married somebody who was forbidden to him to marry, such as a convert or a divorced woman. The children of that union are not mamzerim. They are called Halala or Halal. It means that they are not allowed to be considered part of the community of the Kohanim, but they are at the same time, they are legitimate members of the House of Israel, and they may marry somebody in the House of Israel, anybody in the House of Israel, without a problem. Now, a there is not allowed to marry anyone in the House of Israel. He can marry another there another product of a forbidden union or he can marry a convert and the convert marrying the mamzer is actually it's an act of redemption that the mamzer offspring are then going to be redeemed through this marriage and this is kind of an interesting thing when we think about it so we shouldn't think that get those things confused the Kohen does marry someone he is not allowed to marry. His children are not considered part of the tribe of the Kohenim. In other words, if he has a son, this son is not going to be a Kohen. He cannot be called up to give the blessing of the Kohenim. He cannot be given the honors of a Kohen. He is not a Kohen. And he would be called Halal. And the child, and if it's a girl, he, she cannot marry a Kohen. So that's clear. There's these differences, and this is what I was saying in the introduction before about seeing these differences that the Torah lays down of groups and the responsibilities of groups. The Kohenim had tremendous responsibilities in the house of Israel. And so they also have tremendous responsibility. They have privilege. They also have tremendous responsibility that goes with that privilege. And we can think of that as a, in comparison with the, with the Israel and the rest of the world. Israel is a nation of priests. Israel has a lot of restrictions that the rest of the world does not have. Israel has a tremendous responsibility as being a priestly nation that the rest of the world does not necessarily have. And so, 
there are these restrictions and there are these laws that bind Israel in a way that the rest of the world is not. And it does not mean that the rest of the world, the rest of the nations are inferior any more than it means that the rest of Israel is inferior to the Kohanim. So is that kind of clear? And that's one of the good things about studying the laws of the Kohanim because you can see they just had a different set of laws that applied to them. It's like the laws of the king. Not everybody is the king, but the king had different laws. The high priest had different laws that only applied to him. Okay, also, another person, another woman that was forbidden to, to marry a Kohen is a woman who was a convert. She may not marry Kohen. A, forbidden, a woman who has taken part in forbidden relations like a prostitute and a divorced woman. These women may not marry a Kohen. Now, why would we, just thinking a little bit esoterically, why would a Kohen not be allowed to marry these women? Because a man's thoughts are influenced by his wife. And so Hashem was requiring purity and holiness of this woman who would be a major part of the Kohen's home. So that he would be unencumbered in able in so he's able to perform his duties in the temple. Unencumbered by baggage. You know how people come with baggage from the past. Now, when we have a Kohen, now the Kohen has responsibilities, and he also has privileges in the house of Israel. Now we know that when we give the truma, it goes to the Kohanim. Now these days we don't have that. That's so clear. So when we have a small group of people and there is a Kohen present, the Kohen is always served first. He always eats first because we don't want to accidentally be eating something that could be considered the truma and we didn't know it. And so we give him this honor. He's accorded the honor of reciting the blessing over the bread. If there is a Kohen present, he's the one who's going to do this. He leads the grace after meals. If there are three or more men present, he leads the grace after meals. And when we have the reading of the Torah, we have the seven blessings, seven parts of the reading of the Torah on Shabbat. The Kohen is called first. He gets the first, we call it the Aliyah, where he comes up to the Torah. The Kohen comes first. The Levi comes second. And then the rest of the Aliyot, the rest of the blessings, are given to the Israelites. Now, a Kohen, in order to serve as a high priest, we're going to go to that next, the laws of the Kohen's adult. 
And this is starting with verse 10. But the priest is the greatest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil shall be poured, and who has been authorized to clothe himself with the garments, shall not allow the hair of his head to grow wild, and shall not rend his garments. And he shall not go to any persons that lie there as corpses, or to any part of a corpse that represent a personality. He may defile himself neither for father nor mother. So here he has a different law from the rest of the Kohanim. The rest of the Kohanim are allowed and even required to bury the father or mother. The high priest may not defile himself even for his parents. He may not defile himself at all. And he must go, must not go out of the sanctuary so as not to profane the sanctity of his God for the crown of his God's anointing oil is upon him. I, God. And he shall marry a woman in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a profaned woman or a harlot. He shall not marry any of these but he shall marry a virgin from among the people, and he shall not profane his progeny among his people, for I, God, make him holy. So he has different laws. His, the laws for the high priest are stricter than those laws for the rest of the Kohanim. Whereas the rest of the Kohanim are allowed to, profane, to defile themselves for close relatives, he is not. Now there is still one exception. This one exception even applies to the high priest. If he is in the walking in the road, walking in the field, and he comes upon a dead body, then he is not only allowed, he is required to bury to bury the person, excuse me. He is required. Even the high priest is required. Although I have to tell you I think about it and I cannot imagine the high priest traveling anywhere by himself where this would even come up. But if it should, he is required to do even this. Now the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, had to possess five qualifications. One was wisdom. And this was the foremost of the qualifications required for the Kohen Gadol. Even to... In order to perform this, his avodah, his service in the temple, he's representing all of the nation. And so he had to have wisdom in order to perform this. He had to have a greatness in the Torah, a great wisdom of the Torah. He had to be handsome in appearance. Now why would we think of this? Although external beauty is not intrinsically important, Nevertheless, it was very important for the Kohen Gadol because it was an honor to Hashem in the Beit HaMikdash. Just like the beautiful objects that we use to perform mitzvot, to perform the service, to perform things that we do, the Kohen Gadol was like this, that he needed to be handsome in appearance for the honor of Hashem. He had to have tremendous physical strength Al, you would think, well, that's funny. But think about it. We have a story of Aaron and when he dedicated, and this is in um, the book of Numbers 8, chapter 8, when 
the Leviim were being consecrated to Hashem, Aaron lifted each one into the air and waved him back and forth and up and down. And he did this with 22,000 men in one day. So he had to be extremely, exceptionally strong in order to do this. And just the performing of the sacrifices. He had to be able to lift. He had to be able to throw. He had to do all of the things that were required for the service. The Kohen Gadol also needed to be wealthy. He had to be in a better financial position than other Kohenim. Now, why would we think this? And this can be kind of a pitfall when we think about, oh, he had to be wealthy. And we think about all of these people who are like charlatans who want to take everybody for a ride. And they could use this as a, as a reasoning to say, look, I have to be wealthy. Well, the reason the Kohen Gadol needed to be wealthy was because he had to be above bribery. I mean, think about that. He had to, even in all appearance, every way, he had to be above bribery. And so if he was already wealthy, he was already well-to-do, he had no need, he's not going to be so easily bribed. And we think about some of the sages of Israel who were very, very poor, and they were not easily bribed. And so I'm not saying that it just because a person is poor means that he would be easily bribed. But covering all the bases, this is this is one of those areas, so that he could be above suspicion, that nobody could even suspect that he could be bribed. He had to be of an age. A mature age. Of course, there were times where the Kohen Gadol would be young, but ideally he was a mature person, a mature man. So we're told that if the Kohen Gadol was not handsome or he lacked strength or one of these things was missing, an amazing thing would happen. Our sages say that when he was anointed with the oil of anointment, wondrously, whatever was lacking would be there. He would be wondrously transformed to be handsome or taller or whatever was lacking would be there. And the Kohenim, if the Kohen Gadol was not wealthy, the other Kohenim were expected. It was expected if this man is the most worthy to be the Kohen Gadol, but the one thing he lacks is wealth, the other Kohenim would donate their money to see to it that he was qualified to be the Kohen Gadol. Now, the Kohen Gadol also was more restricted in choosing a wife than an ordinary Kohen because of his superior holiness. The expectations of him were higher. So you cannot take, like any Kohen could not take, a divorced woman or a halala, like we talked about, or, or a convert. A Kohen Gadol also could not take a widow. He could not take a woman who had ever been married before. He had to he had to marry 
a woman who was a virgin of the house of Israel. Now, tradition tells us that many years, many times, the Kohen Gadol took a wife from the tribe of Asher. And the tribe of Asher were very famous for their beautiful, beautiful women. And so the tribe of Asher married into the Kohenim, to the family of Kohenim, but, but a lot of the um, a lot of the Kohenim Gadolim were married to women from the tribe of Asher. They were very beautiful. They retained their youthfulness for a long, long time. They were famous for this. Now we're going to the next subject, which begins with verse 16 and goes through verse 24. God spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, Anyone among your progeny for all the future who has a bodily blemish shall not approach to bring near an offering to his God. For any man who has a bodily blemish shall not approach a blind man or a lame man or one whose nose is flat or whose hips are not equal or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or one with an overhanging eyebrows or one with film or mixture the white of the eye encroaching upon the pupil or with a dry or moist scruff or an injury of the testicle no man of the progeny of Aaron the priest who has a bodily blemish may approach to bring near the offerings to the fire of God as long as he has a bodily blemish he may not approach to bring an offering to his God an offering to his God from the most holy of holies and from the holy things may he may eat but he must not go in to the dividing curtain and he must not approach the altar because he has a bodily blemish he is, he shall not profane my holy things for I, God, make them holy Moshe articulated this to Aaron and his sons and to all the sons of Israel so we see something here that the Kohenim could not serve if they had any kind of physical defect and this included one that was from birth from a birth defect or even a temporary like an injury any kind of defect at all disqualified the Kohen from serving. Now, after he had been healed, of course, he could resume his duties serving in the temple. So, one of the Sanhedrin's jobs was to determine if a Kohen was qualified to enter into his service. Whether he had the proper family origin and also whether he was free of physical blemish. Now, we're told that if the Kohen went to the Sanhedrin and he was Disqualified, he would leave in black garments as a sign of mourning. But if he was found to be qualified to perform the Avodah, he would leave in white garments. And on the days when 
they found only kosher koanim, the Sanhedrin would make a tremendous feast and they would, they would praise Hashem with the following blessing. blessing. Blessed be the Almighty, blessed be He, for the fact that no disqualified Kohen was found in Aaron's seed. And blessed be He who chose Aaron and his sons to serve before Him in the Holy of Holies. Now, the Kohen who was blemish, who had an injury, would still, even though he could not perform the service, he was not excluded from eating the trumah. He could still eat from the sacrifices, but he could not perform the sacrifices. Now, if he became Tameh, of course, he was not per- allowed to eat from them. But, this is not being Tameh. There is another difference of whether a person is unclean or whether he has been blemished, he's injured. Those are two different things. So we have to see the difference of those things too. Why a person, why a Kohen would be disqualified. If he was injured, he was not Tameh. He was not defiled. He was just injured or blemished. Therefore, he could not but he was still able to eat of the truma. He was Tameh, he was not. So now we're going to the next subject. Of safeguarding the sanctity of the offerings and the truma. And this starts in the next chapter. It's the first nine verses. God spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons that they withdraw from the holy things of the sons of Israel, and that they do not profane my holy name, which they hallow for me, I, God. Declare to them, for your descendants, anyone of all your progeny who comes near to the holy things which the sons of Israel sanctify to God, while his uncleanness is upon him, that person shall be uprooted from before my countenance, I, God. Anyone, anyone from the progeny of Aaron who is leprous or has a discharge may not eat of the holy things until he has become pure. And one who touches anyone who has become unclean from contact with a dead body or who has had a discharge of seed or one who has touched any creeping thing that is unclean for him, or a person who is unclean for him, with regard to any of his unclean states, that person who touches any of these things shall remain unclean until the evening, and may not eat of any of the holy things as long as he has not bathed his body in water. And this is going to the mikvah. Bathing his body in water like this is a ritual cleansing which is in the mikvah. And when the sun is set and he has become pure, only then may he eat of the holy things, for it is food that has been assigned to him. He must not eat anything that has died of itself or that has been torn to become unclean by it, by God. Now this is a law, anything that has died of itself or has been torn, this is a law that applies to everybody, not to eat of that. 
They are to keep what I have entrusted to them, and they must not burden themselves with sin thereby, lest they die. If they were to profane it, it is I, God, who makes them holy. So here is another area where Hashem is defining what is holiness. Holiness for the Kohen is more strict than holiness for the people of Israel. Holiness for the people of Israel is more strict the definition is more strict than the definition for the people of the world. Now, do are there things expected of the people of the world that would make them holy or not holy? Of course. Even though the people of the world, the people of the nations, do not have the status of clean and unclean, they still do have a status of holy or not holy. There are ways that people can be defiled by breaking the laws of God. So we have to understand what laws apply to us. And we are holy by observing those laws that apply to us. These are the list of those laws that apply to the Kohanim. And they don't necessarily apply to any of the other people of Israel. So let's just look at this for a moment. Who may not eat of the truma? The truma is like the part, it's like a tithe. The part that's separated from crops. And then it, it has a degree of kedusha, a degree of holiness. So this is the portion, the truma is the portion that is set aside for the Kohanim. It belongs to them. It is their portion. So of course, a person who eats this and is not allowed to is going to be punished by heaven person who is Tamei, a Kohen, rather, who is Tamei, who is unclean, would be punished for eating the truma in a state of impurity. And how is he punished? We're told that he's punished by death by the hand of Hashem. It's not going to be a rabbinical court pass judgment on him and put him to death. It's not. It's a different death penalty, but it's still a death penalty. It's a death penalty passed by the court of heaven. So he is not allowed to eat of the truma. If he is the Kohen is in a state of impurity, he's not allowed to eat this. A non Kohen, person who is not um, a person who is an Israelite and is not a Kohen, he is absolutely forbidden to eat this. This is only belongs to the Kohen. Now here's something very interesting that you're going to find very interesting. A Kohen's Hebrew servant is not allowed to eat the truma. However, a Kohen's Canaanite servant, he has a Canaanite slave, a non-Jewish servant, is permitted to eat the, the truma because he is considered the Kohen's property. And here we get into a whole issue of slavery and the status of that. Because a Hebrew slave was not a servant slave, uh, bondsman was not ever considered the property of the master he was not going to be in his house forever and always the year of jubilee he was to be set free so he was not ever considered 
the property of the master. He was not considered a part of the master's household in that manner. So he could not eat the truma. He is an Israelite. However, a Canaanite slave would be in the master's house forever. Still a human being. He's not an animal. He is a human being. So he's more like a part of this Kohen family. He becomes more like the part of the Kohen family than the Hebrew slave. Uh, so he is allowed to eat the trumah. I, I, I thought that was very interesting. Does anybody have a comment so far? I had not stopped to ask. But maybe somebody on this subject might have a comment. So just jump in there if you do and I'll, I'll stop. A Kohen who whether through his own fault, which I don't understand how that could possibly be, or circumstances beyond his control was uncircumcised. Now, a Jewish baby is circumcised at day, eight days old. So it is impossible that it could ever be a man's own fault that he was not circumcised. Unless, you know, he, later when he grew up and he just neglected to do it. But from the time he was eight days old, that would not be his own, his own fault. But after he grew up and he did not correct that, of course it would be. And you try to think of how in the world this could even be possible for there to be a Kohen who was not circumcised. But, I mean, think about it. If he was, for some reason, in the exile, um, the people who were wandering the wilderness for 40 years, they did not circumcise their babies for a while. And so they all had to be circumcised before they came into the land of Israel. And here is another term that we talked about before. Halal or halala. This is the, the son or the daughter of a Kohen who is born of a forbidden union. Who is born of a union with a woman who is a divorcee or a convert. A forbidden union to a Kohen. And the child born of this union is not allowed to eat the truma because this child is no, not part of the house of the Kohenim. A Kohen's daughter who marries an Israelite is not allowed any longer to eat the truma because she's no longer considered part of her father's house. However, if her husband divorces her or he dies and she's childless, she's permitted to eat the truma again. Now, if she had children with him, she is still considered part of his house. And she's not allowed to eat the truma. Okay, the next subject is, does anybody have a question so far before I go on? Everybody's being awfully quiet. And what do you all, all of you think about what I just said about the um, seeing 
the division, seeing how Hashem says these laws apply to this group and not this group. So that you can see a little bit more clearly the way Hashem sees the difference between Israel and the nations in a positive way rather than in a derogatory way. What does everybody think of that? Do you see how the laws of the Kohanim kind of help you see that a little bit more clearly? You can kind of connect with that when you think of Israel as being the nation of priests. So you can compare the na- Israel to the Kohanim and the nations to the way Israel is in comparison to the Kohanim. Just make it a little bit clearer about that. I see Chesed is typing. How do observant Jews say they are responsible for all 613 laws when clearly not all laws apply to all Israel? Well, collectively, we are responsible for all 613 laws. Collectively, we are. And when we read the parts of the Torah that talk about the sacrifices, and these are in the prayer book, it's as though we are doing the sacrifices. That's right. Everyone has a mission in life and all of us fit into the whole plan, the whole picture. Each one of us is a part of that whole picture. And that's what I want us to glean out of these lessons about the priesthood. How specific Hashem is about the priesthood and how he will talk about the garments of the priesthood and then we can, you can think and there are certain garments that the people of Israel are supposed to wear. But just as the people of Israel do not wear the garments of the priesthood, absolutely not, but we have other garments that are commanded for Jewish men to wear, like the tzitzit. Non-Jewish people are not commanded to wear the tzitzit. They're not commanded to wear the garments that the people of Israel are commanded to wear. And that's another thing where we can kind of see the differences there. A person who would not be a priest would never, it would be unthinkable that you would go and you would wear these garments. A Kohen who is not high, the Kohen Gadol, who is not the high priest, would never put on the ephod. Absolutely not. It is only for the Kohen Gadol. And so this helps us to see a little bit clearer how Hashem gives commands to certain groups of people and said, you must do this. And even though it might look like a cool thing to do, think about it in terms of an Israelite wearing the garments of a priest or a a priest wearing the garments of the high priest. just is not done. It doesn't mean that you're not as good or you're being... um, lighted in any way it's just this is not something that was required of you and it's not something that you're supposed to do so 
I know that there's a lot of confusion when people will read about tzitzit they think oh I've got to run out and do that even non-Jewish people I've seen them do this and it's just it's not it's not a good thing to do it's not required of them because they don't understand the whole ramification of what that's for even a Jewish woman does not wear tzitzit she does not wear tefillin for the most part it's some some of them take it into their heads to do it but Jewish women don't do it right and that would be kind of ridiculous because a, a woman desiring to be the, a priestess and wanting to wear the garments of priesthood that would be kind of ridiculous because Hashem commanded that it be the sons of Aaron not a woman there are times that a woman is not you know, a man does not have the times of uh, the periodic times of uncleanness that a woman has. A woman, on a regular basis, would not be able to perform the service of the temple. I mean, it's just a practical thing. And so, it's just, she shouldn't even think about it. Okay. One more comment. And when we read about the the truma and how um, an Israelite is absolutely forbidden to eat this, this is it helps you to see a little bit clearer. And I think you're right, Alan and Eileen. I think you're absolutely right. Doing what is forbidden can hurt your soul because, for one thing you're not going to do it correctly most likely you will not do it correctly and also you're not fulfilling like the person who is, is commanded to do it is fulfilling something that is necessary for his soul and if you are not commanded to do it your soul doesn't need that and it could, you're right, it could hurt your soul. Okay, I think you make a very, very good point there. Okay, now we're to the next section called Blemished Animals. Now this is talking about the animals that would be presented for sacrifice. So it's 17 through 31. God spoke to Moshe saying speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them anyone anyone of the house of Israel and of those who have entered into Israel from abroad who wishes to bring near his offering for all their vows and all their free will offerings that they wish to bring near to God as an ascent offering as an expression of your will it must be without blemish male from the cattle and from the sheep or from the goats anything with a blemish you shall not bring near for it shall not serve you as an expression of your will and if anyone brings near to God a meal of peace offering as a pledge or a free will offering from the cattle or from small livestock it shall be without blemish as an expression of your will no blemish shall come upon it 
blind or broken or scratched or with a wart or with a dry or moist scruff. These you shall not bring near to God and you shall not place any of them upon the altar as a fire offering to God. And if an ox or a lamb has overgrown an overgrown limb or a club foot, you can make it as a free will offering, but you shall not it shall not serve you as a vow to express your will. And anything that has a crushed or mangled, torn off or cut off, you shall not bring near to God, and you shall also not do such a thing in your land. Also from the hand of a foreigner you shall not bring the offering for your God not from any of these because they bear their corruption in the blemish that is upon them they cannot serve you as an expression of your will and God spoke to Moshe saying if an ox or a sheep or goat is born right right it shall be under its mother seven days and from the eighth day and thereafter it shall serve as an expression of will to bring near as a fire offering to God. And as for an ox or a sheep, you shall not slaughter it and its young on the same day. And if you slaughter a meal of thanks offering to God, you shall slaughter it as an expression of your will. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall not leave any of it till the next morning. I, God, keep my commandments and carry them out. I, God. So here's a, a list. It's a pretty specific list here in the written Torah about how an animal is supposed to be fit for sacrifice. That it could not have any blemish whatsoever. It had to be physically perfect. Now, there is a midrash about one of the one of the sins that caused the destruction of the second temple it was unfounded hatred. The story of a Jew named Barkhamsa, who the servant of a rich man mistakenly invited to his master's party. In fact, the servant had been delegated to invite a different person who had a similar name, Kamsa. When Barkamsa, rather than Kamsa, appeared at the meal, the host grew angry for he hated Barkamsa. Leave immediately, he ordered. Barkamsa, embarrassed to be expelled in front of the assembled guests, requested that he be allowed to stay, but the host insisted upon his leaving. Barkamsa then offered to pay for his portion, but to no avail. He proceeded to offer half the expenses of the banquet and finally the expenses of the entire feast. However, the host would not hear of his enemies staying in his home. Barkhamsa left shamefaced, swearing revenge not only upon the rich Jew, but upon the Jewry collectively, since he blamed the sages who attended the meal for having watched his shame and expulsion in silence. He began to enter Roman circles and spread a rumor that the Jews were plotting a revolt against the emperor. The emperor heard of it and asked Barkhamsa, What proof do you have that you speak the truth? You can see for yourself how low you stand in the esteem of the Jews by sending a sacrifice to their temple. They will certainly not offer it. 
said Barkhamsa. The emperor sent a healthy first-class calf to be offered up on the Mizbeach, on the altar. However, Barkhamsa inflicted a small wound on it, an incision on its upper lip, and this was a hint to the generation that they had sinned by their secret, by their hatred and Lashon Hara, their evil speech. They cut the upper lip of the calf. This tiny cut would never have been considered a defect by an ordinary standard. However, according to Torah law, it disqualified the animal as a sacrifice. The sages were aware of the trap, were inclined to permit the offering of the animal despite its defect, so as to avoid a probable war. However, an old and venerated sage, Rav Zachariah bin Achilles, objected in offer to offering this blemished animal, and the Jews consequently refused to accept the calf, and the emperor decided to wage war upon Yerushalayim. So why was it here in this story we see that a non-Jewish person the emperor could have sent a sacrifice and it would have been accepted if it was not blemished so non-Jewish people were allowed to bring sacrifices just that it had to be even from a non-Jew it had to be perfect it could not have any blemish on it at all and then the next thing that we learn about is that the animal had to be over eight days old. could not be under eight days old. Now this is kind of an interesting thing. And it has to do with, one of the things it has to do with um, is that it's sort of like a baby being circumcised when he's eight days old. He lives through one Shabbat and he absorbs the holiness of the Shabbat and in the same way this little animal absorbed the holiness of a Shabbat before it could be a sacrifice in the temple but there was something else that was really significant about waiting for eight days Hashem said if he was sacrificed on the first day people might make a mistake and think that he's offering it to the heaven and earth that were created on the first day. If he were offered on the second day, it could be assumed that he's slaughtering to the firmament that was created on that day. On the third day, people might assume that he wishes to honor the oceans and dry land. On the fourth day, they could assume he's worshiping the heavenly bodies. The fifth day, that he was worshiping creeping things. And on the sixth day, that he was idolizing man. So, said, let him wait seven days to, dis- to demonstrate that I am the creator. That not even on Shabbat, not even on the seventh day, but on the eighth day, after the whole time, he absorbs the Shabbat. He goes through all the week, and then he is ready. The animal is then ready to be a perfect sacrifice. Uh, the next thing that was kind of an interesting thing that we... It's very, very strong. It's in the written Torah... And you should understand something about Torah and the levels of severity that when you read it in the written Torah it is the most strict. In the next 
next most strict law is from the rabbinical and then after that comes traditions and extrapolations but the most strict is the written Torah and in the written Torah we read a mother animal such as a sheep or a cow you shall not offer both it and its young in one day the very strict Torah law now it doesn't sound like you know you think wow that would be something that would be so strict but it is written in the Torah so on the surface of this we can look at it and we can see that this is from compassion that we're having compassion on these animals but it's it's not just compassion on these animals it's to elicit compassion it's to to cause compassion to be in us it's to make our awareness our sensitivity more keen so it's for our sakes that he gives this, this kind of law to be aware and even if you sell an animal you sell the animal and the mother you had to make sure that the person who bought it understood this is the animal and this is the, the baby of this mother if a farmer sold an animal to like there's going to be a wedding and he sold the one animal to the groom's family and the other and the baby to the bride's family he had to make them aware that this is the mother and this is the baby and it didn't say that they could not be slaughtered on the same day at the same place it said the same day so even if he sold it to two different people he had to make them aware so that they would not inadvertently commit the sin of killing these two animals on the same day another thing is like there's the mitzvah in Devarim in Deuteronomy of not taking a mother bird and her eggs together or her chicks together you had to shoo the mother bird away and before you would take the chicks so Hashem had all these decrees that were considered being sensitive being compassionate eliciting this compassion within us cultivating the compassion within us and it's interesting because when we look at the prophets and we look at what happened to the Jewish people and then you compare it to the Torah you see like for instance the decree about not not slaughtering a mother animal and her young together and then you look at the book of Esther and what did Haman do he decreed that he wanted to destroy the Jews both young and old little children and women in one day he makes that point in one day how different Hashem is commanding us to be even with animals how much more so with human beings that we're supposed to really be considerate and, we're, and we can see the wickedness of the enemy of Haman that he was so wicked that even with human beings he's doing what Hashem had said don't even do this to animals and Hashem commanded that the newborn young stay seven days with the mother the Egyptian pharaoh on the other hand commanded that 
the Jewish newborn babies be strangled while they were still in the birth stools. You know, strangled at birth. So this is a sadistic thing that Hashem is giving us these laws to cultivate compassion within us so that we will not have the sadistic nature that we see displayed in the enemies of our people that we see told about in the prophets. We're not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to cultivate compassion. This is something that is inherent in human nature that we're supposed to, this is what being human is. Being compassionate is what being human is. And when we act in a different way, we're killing that part of ourselves that is human, that is definitively human. Okay, does anybody have any comments on this section? Okay, we're going to go on then. The next section is just a a couple verses. is about the desecration of Hashem's name. That is verse 32 and 33. And do not profane my holy name, but let me be sanctified in the midst of the sons of Israel. I, God, make you holy, who brings you out from the land of Mitzrayim to be God to you, I God so this is something that is very important for all of us to understand what is desecration of God's name shall not desecrate my name now there are three things that if we're told that we have to do these things or die that we have got to we are required as Jewish people we're required to die now these three things are worshipping idols committing murder or committing sin of forbidden relationship these are capital sins they're they're sins that require us to lay down our lives And if we do not lay down our lives for these sins, instead of committing these sins, then we are desecrating the name of Hashem. So we have to sacrifice our lives for these three cardinal sins. Now, if a non-Jew in the presence of ten Jewish males bids a Jew to violate any mitzvah of the Torah, and this is any mitzvah of the Torah, a Jew has to sacrifice his life. Now this is sort of like what has happened during persecution. That he has to sacrifice his life. During religious persecution, when we're forbidden to perform certain mitzvot, and this is sort of like in the times of the Romans or the time of the Spanish Inquisition, or even you can think of during the time of the Nazis 
in the concentration camps many times Yom Kippur would come and the Nazis would lay this incredible feast before these starving people and it's very very difficult for us to condemn any man any person who would eat that food but yet this was considered a desecration of the name of God and that was the reason the Nazis were doing it was to try to get these people to desecrate the name of God now if a Jew even privately sins not because he's overcome by temptation or because he benefits personally but solely for the purpose of angering the creator now think about this and defying his will he desecrates the name of heaven you can think of examples of this he just wants to prove that he can do it Dafka he can do it he desecrates the name of heaven if a person publicly acts beneath the standards of piety expected of him he desecrates the name of heaven because if he does this he acts in a lower way than is expected of him he causes people to look at the Torah itself in a different way to think oh well maybe if he does it then maybe it's okay for me to do it and one example of this is Rav who was a famous person and he said if I delay payment to the butcher he would never delay paying the butcher because the butcher might think that he was trying to avoid paying him altogether and he would lose his respect for him as a Talmud Hacham as a, as a scholar of the Torah and also another thing is that the butcher might become lax in his own ideas in his own meticulousness to avoid theft and so as an example for one thing but also so that the butcher wouldn't think badly of him as a Torah scholar who was meticulous in paying his bill and this is something that we should all think about there are all these areas where we should not even have the hint of doing something evil doing something that is forbidden to us because it causes people to look not just at us but at what we represent if people know that you're a person who is learning the Torah who is clinging to the Torah and is wanting to have a Torah life and then you do something that is a little bit off color it causes them to look at the Torah in a different way see what I'm saying does that make sense Rav um, Yochanan said I would desecrate the divine name if I would ever be seen walking around and not engaged in Torah or wearing tefillin people wouldn't realize I didn't feel well they would think Torah learning was not so important so for these people who are on this very very high level they they have a big responsibility because people look at them and they say oh wow well he's not doing it 
then I guess it's not so important. Because he's, look at him, he's on this high level. And so it could be construed as what we call Hilul Hashem, which means profaning the name of Hashem. There's a, there are examples of this in, in the Tanakh. The sons of the high priest, Eli, desecrated the name of the honor of the Mishkan by treating the service of the temple irreverently. And so they were committing a Hilul Hashem and they actually died in battle. It was a death penalty against them by the court of heaven that they died in battle because of the sin of Hilul Hashem. And like I said, because they were of the priestly nation, of the priestly tribe. And so they were held to a higher standard. Okay, I see somebody has a comment. But we have to always be sensitive to this. Always be aware of the things that we do that could be construed as desecration of the name of Hashem. And by the opposite, exa- right, that we set a positive example. That's exactly right. That by that we are doing, we are doing the opposite. We're sanctifying the name of Hashem. We're bring, bringing honor to the Torah. We're bringing honor to heaven by do, by performing the mitzvot in the world. And this is just even on a very surface level of what people around us see. And and this is what I'm talking about. People around us seeing this. This can be desecration or sanctification of his name. And this is an important thing for us to, to learn, for B'nai Noach to learn, because desecrating the name of Hashem is one of the laws, is blasphemy, or desecrating his name, is one of the prohibitions of the Noach as well. So we should always be seeking in our life to always be going up and always be sanctifying the name of Hashem. Kiddush Hashem. It says, and I shall be sanctified in the midst of B'nai Israel. And this is the 32nd chapter, uh, verse. This is a mitzvah. It's of sanctifying his name. And it obligates us. So as I said, there are three cardinal sins that we would commit that would be desecrating his name. And if we refrain from that, then we are doing the opposite. We're sanctifying his name. Now during a a period of religious persecution we're required to sacrifice our lives even to avoid violating a minor mitzvah even a minor transgression of the Torah has to be avoided even to the point of death because it is that important to sanctify the name of Hashem In the book of Daniel, we have a story of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar erected a statue of himself 
in his own honor. It was not, he could, we could argue that it wasn't really an idol because it was of himself and all this. It was an idol. But it could be argued it wasn't really an idol because it wasn't of one of the gods or something like that. But the three young men Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah that you might remember as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego sanctify the name of Hashem by refusing to bow to this statue. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar threw them into the fiery furnace. It's a very famous story. I'm sure you all know it. Hashem saved them out of this fiery furnace. They did not die. So they were, were rewarded like that. So, there was another story that's not so famous of a time uh, during the Roman occupation when there had been uh, murder murder of the Roman emperor Trajan's daughter she was found murdered and the murder was blamed on the Jewish people so Trajan decided that he was going to exterminate all of them because he did not know who was guilty so there were two Tzadikim brothers, Lulianus and Pavus, came forward and confessed to this murder, even though they were not guilty. They confessed to the murder in order that the Jewish people would be saved. They knew that Trajan was a wicked king. And he knew full well that they were not guilty. So he said to them, you are from the people of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, aren't you? And you're not afraid of the executioner because you think that God will save you from the executioner like he saved your, ex- uh, your ancestors. But they replied to the emperor, You're mistaken. We, are not, we did not deliver ourselves in hope of being rescued. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were perfectly righteous and deserving of a miracle but we are not moreover Nebuchadnezzar was a worthy emperor for after the miracle he acknowledged God's might consequently the name of heaven was sanctified you however will not abandon your wicked ways even if we are saved and therefore no miracle will occur so they were sanctifying the name of Hashem, fully not expecting a miracle. Moreover, don't you think your decree causes us to die? In fact, we are guilty of a sin for which we deserve death. The Almighty has many agents to execute judgment. He has at his service bears, lions, and panthers, which can kill people. However, he selected you as his agent, so he can turn punishment can in turn punish you for putting to death two men who are innocent of the misdeed of which you accuse them. Trajan was unmoved. He gave the orders to have the brothers immediately executed. Before long, he too met his end at the hands of murderers. When two Roman noblemen assassinated him by crushing his head with wooden rods, 
So it's interesting how you know, we can't be counting on a miracle. We can't look at, oh, well, these three were rescued out of the fire. That is not, if we're counting on a miracle, it is not sanctifying the name of God. You're doing it for an ulterior motive. And these two brothers, Lulianus and Pavus, were definitely not doing this for an ulterior motive. They did not expect a miracle, and they said so. They said so to the emperor, and they did not get one. They did die. Okay, so the next thing we're going to is, and we, um, I want us to kind of get through this quickly because we have like half an hour left. And the rest of the of the Parsha is about the, well, we get down to the menorah, but it's mainly about the, the festivals. So, festivals, one through three. God spoke to Moshe saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, God's appointed times for meetings and you shall proclaim them as convocations to the sanctuary. These are my appointed times for meetings. Six days shall creating work be done and on the seventh day the, the Shabbat of cessation from creating work is a convocation to the sanctuary. You may not perform any creating work then. This is a Shabbat to God in all your dwelling places. So any time that you see a list of the festivals, of course, Shabbat comes first. It is the first of the festivals. And in fact, it's very interesting that Shabbat was proclaimed by Hashem, that we were given Shabbat even before we were given the Torah. That we were given Shabbat at the waters of Merivah. I mean, yeah. We were given the Shabbat and we were given the man, and we were given the some of the laws at the very beginning, before the giving of the Torah. These are God's appointed times for meeting, convocations to the sanctuary, which you must proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth of the month, between the two evenings, is the Pesach to God. And on the 15th of that month is the festival of Matzot, dedicated to God. For seven days you shall eat only unleavened bread. So this is the festival of Pesach. On the first day there shall be no, there shall be for you a convocation in the sanctuary. You must not do any service work. And you shall bring near to God for seven days a fire offering. And on the seventh day is a convocation to the sanctuary. You must not do any work. So you have the first day, which is Pesach, coming out of Egypt. And for seven days you have the um, Feast of Unleavened Bread. What is the seventh day commemorating? The first day is coming out of Egypt. The seventh day is the commemoration of the crossing of the sea. So each one of these, we're remembering what Hashem did. It's remembering So that's Pesach. 
God spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come to the land which I shall give you, and you reap its harvest, you shall bring the omer of the first reaping to the priest, and he shall wave the omer before God as an expression of your will. On the day after that Sabbath shall the priest wave it, and on the day you wave the omer you shall offer an unblemished yearling sheep as an ascent offering to God and its homage offering to two tenths of fine wheat flour mixed with oil a fire offering to God as an expression of compliance and its wine libation one fourth of a hen and you shall not eat bread parched flour and green ears until that day until you have made the offering to your God an everlasting statute for your descendants in all your dwelling places and you shall count for yourselves from the day after that Shabbat from the day of your bringing the wave offering of the Omer and it shall be seven complete Shabbats so this is the counting of the Omer and we're right now in the midst of the counting of the Omer and the counting of the Omer ends on the feast of Shavuot now I'm going to talk about Shavuot in just a moment so this is the counting of the Omer now why do we count so the first day Pesach was the leaving of Egypt the seventh day was crossing the sea the people began counting they weren't going to receive the Torah right away but they were counting it was 50 days after they came out of Egypt 50 days 7 weeks on the 50th day was the giving of the Torah so they were counting and this is like oh it's only this many days left you know there are times in your life where you're looking forward to something and it's so important and it's so urgent that you reach that time that you can't wait and you're counting the days you're counting the moments you're counting the days well this is why we're commanded to count the Omer it's in order for us to have this anticipation that we've gone 33 days Lagba Omer is 33 33 days we only have this many days left 34 days we only have this many left we're looking forward to reliving this reliving receiving the Torah so starting with verse 16 until the day after the seventh Shabbat you shall count 50 days so in Greek what was this what is the familiar term for this day does anybody know is anybody out there it was 50 days what is 50 in Greek it was Pentecost right that's right exactly so the wave offering is it's it's one of the offerings to Hashem and it's it's sanctifying uh, it gets involved I, I don't want to go into that right now but because I'm going in a different direction at this moment so you count 50 days and then you bring the new homage offering to Hashem 
For you shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread as a wave offering made of two tents. They shall be of fine wheat flour. They shall be baked as leavened bread. They shall bake, and notice this, baked as leavened bread, not unleavened, but leavened. They are the first fruits for God. And you shall bring near with the bread seven sheep without blemish, one year old and one young bull and two rams. They shall be an ascent offering to God, and their homage offering, their libation, a fire offering of an expression of compliance to God. And you shall offer one he-goat as an offering that clears him who brings it of sin, and two yearling sheep as a peace, meal of peace offering. And the priest shall wave these together with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before God, together with the two sheep. They shall be holy to God, and through him they shall belong to the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on that very day. It shall be to you a convocation to the sanctuary. You must not do any service work, an everlasting statute, in all your dwelling places for all your descendants. And when you reap the harvest of your land, and you shall not completely remove the corner of your field when you reap, and you shall not glean the glean, gather the gleanings of your harvest, you shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I, God, am your God. So it's very interesting that one of the things that we do on Shavuot, one of the one of the liturgies that we read on Shavuot, is the Book of Ruth. Now, in the Book of Ruth, you're reading about one thing you're reading about is the harvest you're reading about the harvest and you're reading about this very thing about the mitzvah of leaving the corners and leaving the droppings so that the poor can glean them that's one thing you read in the book of Ruth but another thing you're reading in the book of Ruth is here is a woman who comes from outside from afar and she comes in to accept the Torah so we're thinking about two things on Shavuot we've been counting the Omer and we have this idea of the Omer is the with the grains and they were looking forward to this first harvest of the springtime of the summer after the spring of the summer and so that's one part of it is the harvest and we see that in the book of Ruth but Shavuot was the day of the giving of the Torah and that's the most important part of Shavuot is the giving of the Torah this is the celebration 50 days after leaving Egypt the people received the Torah and the month of Er is the only month that is the, the whole month is during this time of the counting of the Omer because Pesach begins in the middle of the month of Nisan and then we end the counting of the Omer and Shavuot is the sixth day of this next coming month of Sivan so it ends in Sivan it begins in Nisan the whole month of the counting of the Omer is in Iyar when I began this whole session of classes I was talking about the month of Iyar and what is so important about this month that it is a month that is associated with the tribe of 
Issachar, who are the scholars of the Torah. So all this month, we're like, again, one more year, we're again preparing ourselves to receive the Torah in, in a new way. And through this month of Yar, we're reading through the, the book of Leviticus. We're reading these laws, very strict laws, and do this and don't do that, and these are the laws of purity, and it's talking about purification. So it's through this month that is preparing our souls to one more time. So just like in Pesach, we're not supposed to say when they came out of Egypt, it's when we came out of Egypt. And so in the same way, it's when we are again receiving the Torah in a new way when we receive the Torah so this is something really significant really really significant about this whole thing that makes it so personal that we live this in the rhythm of time through every year through the rhythm of these Parsha out, through the rhythm of the months of the year through the holidays and in this Parsha he, um, Hashem outlines the holidays they're not suggestions they're not oh this might be a fun thing to do if no these are commands that the Jewish people have to observe not you take off if you can or if you feel like it it's no you have a Shabbat here you do not do any work it's not a suggestion it's a command to the Jewish people again we have to understand this like just like I said before there were commands to the Kohanim that were not commands to the rest of the people of Israel. And here is a list of commands to the Jewish people that are not commands to the rest of the nation. But it is important for you to understand the rhythm of time of the year spoken of in the Torah. So now we're going to go to the next part, which it's like we skip. We skip over from Sivan, we're skipping over a few months. Sivan, Tammuz, Av, Elul, and then we are to Tishrei. The first to Tishrei. This is Rosh Hashanah. And when we get to these months, I'm going to talk more about the specialness of each one because each one has its own unique tone own unique message for us God spoke to Moshe saying this is verse 23-24 speak to the sons of Israel saying in the seventh month on the first day of the month there shall be for you cessation from work a retrospection of the Teruma a convocation to the sanctuary You must not do any service work and you shall bring near a fire offering to God. So this is Rosh Hashanah. What is significant about Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah is is the holiday in which we, we celebrate the birthday of the world. It's the birthday of mankind. This is the year. This is the holiday, which marks the begin uh, one of the beginnings of our year. We say Pesach begins the year. We also say Rosh Hashanah begins the year. We have two real 
significant new years. We actually have four new years, but these are the most significant. Pesach was the birth of the Jewish people. This was in Nisan. Rosh Hashanah is the birth of mankind. So we celebrate, we begin the counting of our years, actually, at the first of Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, is connected to the birth of all mankind. So, when Adam became a living soul in the world, is where we begin counting time. Our year this year is 5766, from the creation of Adam. The way we say it, from the creation of Adam. So this is, Judaism is probably the only religion, I dare say, the only religion that counts from a universal point rather than something only significant to us. If we were going to count only from something significant to us, we would begin counting the year, period, from Pesach. This is where our nation was born. This is where it is significant to us, and we don't care about the rest of the world. That's not what we do. We begin counting the years that are our years, at Rosh Hashanah, which is significant for all mankind. God spoke to Moshe, saying, Only on the tenth of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a convocation to the sanctuary. You shall starve your vital energies, and you shall bring near a fire offering to God. And you must not do any creating work on that day, for it is a day of atonement to effect atonement for you before God, your God. For any soul that is not made to starve on that same day shall be uprooted from among its people, and any person that does any manner of creating work on that same day, I shall cause that soul to be destroyed from the midst of its people. You must not do any creating work, an everlasting statute for your descendants in all your dwelling places. It is for you a Shabbat to be observed by cessation from activity and you shall starve your vital energies on the ninth of the month in the evening from evening to evening you shall observe Shabbat. Now this is Yom Kippur. It's called the Day of Atonement. And this is a day when we do a complete total fast. This total fast is from food and water. You do not eat or drink anything for 25 hours from, the, from before sunset to after sunset the next evening. And it's, it's a very, very holy day. Now, this is the day that the third time Moshe Rabbeinu came down from the mountain. The third time he came down on Yom Kippur. It was a very significant day. So each one of the holidays that we're talking about, we can look at all of these different holidays. There's a significance to it. It came from the very first time that it was something happened that was ordained. Coming out of Egypt, crossing the sea, the giving of the Torah, and then going up, coming down, going up, going down, the destroying the tablets the ninth of, of Av. It was a terrible day. 
going up, coming down, going up, coming down. And the last time he came down was Yom Kippur. So it's a day of atonement. And we say that on Rosh Hashanah, it's written in the book in the heaven. The court of heaven writes in the book the decisions for all the world, all of the nations of the world. Decisions are, are being made in the court of heaven on Rosh Hashanah and on Yom Kippur it's sealed like the seal of decree of the king that this is the way it's going to be for this year for not just for the people of Israel but for all of the world all of the nations of the world are to have the decrees of what's going to happen to them for good and for bad on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur God spoke to Moshe saying Speak to the sons of Israel on the 15th day of the 7th month is the festival of Hut or Sukkot Hebrew 7 days dedicated to God on the first day shall be a convocation to the sanctuary you must not do any service work 7 days you shall bring near a fire offering to God on the 8th day there shall be for you a convocation to the sanctuary and you shall bring near a fire offering to God it shall be a gathering up for preservation you shall not do any service work these are the are God's appointed times for meeting which you shall proclaim as convocations to the sanctuary to bring near to God a fire offering a sin offering an homage offering meal offering and libation each in accordance with its own day apart from the Sabbath the Shabbat of God and apart from your obligatory offerings and apart from all your vows and apart from all your free will offerings which you have to give to God only on the fifteenth day of the seventh month when you gather in the produce of the land you shall celebrate the festival of God for seven days on the first day shall be a cessation from work and on the eighth day shall be a cessation from work and you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the tree of beauty leaves of palm branches and myrtle branches and willow of the brook and rejoice before God your God for seven days and you shall celebrate it as a festival of God seven days in the year an everlasting statute for your descendants in the seventh month shall you celebrate it you shall dwell in huts for seven days all who are native born in Israel shall dwell in huts so that your descendants may know that I made the sons of Israel dwell in huts when I brought them out from the land of Mitzrayim Egypt I God am your God Moshe proclaimed God's appointed times for meeting to the sons of Israel now this is a celebration Sukkot is a celebration of when the people of Israel lived in the wilderness we lived in this temporary setting in huts in the wilderness before we came to Eretz Israel and this is a holiday that according to it's very very interesting if you look at the last part of the book of Zechariah just a second Last book of uh, last part of the book of Zechariah, you will see that there is a command or there is a prophecy. 
that the people of the world will also, in the last days, celebrate this holiday, Sukkot. This is meant for the people of the nations to celebrate. So after there is this terrible war in the world and Israel has survived, it shall be that all who are left over from all the nations who had invaded Jerusalem will come up every year to worship the king, Hashem, master of legions, this is, to celebrate the festival of Sukkot. This is going to be a command, not only on the people of Israel, but on all the nations of the world. And it shall be that whichever family of the land does not go up to Jerusalem to bow down before the king, Hashem, master of legions, there will be no rain upon it. But if it is the family of Egypt that does not go up and does not come to Jerusalem, there will be no water for them. The same, the same plague will come to, pla- to pass with which Hashem will strike the nations that do not go to celebrate the festival of Sukkot. This will be the punishment of the Egyptians and the punishment of all the nations that will not go up to celebrate the festival of Sukkot. So it's going to be so important this decree that all the nations have to go up to celebrate the festival of Sukkot that if they do not they will be punished with not having rain. It's very interesting to note that there are three Aliyot holidays and Sukkot is one of them. Well, I, I think it's going to be representatives of families from the nations. But even now, you should note that even now, even without a temple, the Kohenim meets at the Kotel by the Temple Mount and they say blessings upon the 70 nations at Sukkot. When there was a temple standing, one of the parts of the service of Sukkot was sacrifices, 70 sacrifices on behalf of the nations of the world. All of the nations of the world had prayer at this time by the priests of Israel. And even now, like I said, even now, the Kohanim every single year say a blessing upon all the nations of the world, the 70 root nations of the world at Sukkot. So the rhythm of the year begins at Pesach and it goes through the whole year and it culminates at Sukkot. So Pesach is an Aliyah holiday and Sukkot is an Aliyah holiday. We have to go up for these festivals. I'm going to quickly go through the rest of this. Um, I ask your patience, your indulgence, while I quickly go through this, because I'm not going to have time to do it in depth, but I do want to read it. God spoke to Moshe, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they take for you pure olive oil, pressed for light, to make light spring up continually. Aaron shall set it out before God continually from evening to morning outside the dividing curtain of the te- testimony in the tent of appointed meeting. 
an everlasting statute for your generations. He shall set out lamps upon the pure menorah for God continually, and you shall take fine wheat flour and bake it into twelve loaves. Each loaf shall be of two tenths. Now you should know before I go on with this, that this menorah, there was one menorah that was made for the people in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle. But when Solomon built the temple, there had been a depletion of the light. It wasn't as great. The light of the Shekhinah was not as great as it had been at the Mishkan in the wilderness. That had diminished. And so Solomon set ten menorot around the temple at different places in the temple. There was one main one, but there were a total of ten. So if there were seven lights on each menorah, how many lights were there in the temple? There were 70. And so the sages tell us, right, 70. So the nations tell, uh, the sages tell us that this is a hint that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all people. That this was a light to 70 nations from the temple. Now I'm going to go on. And you shall set them up in two stacks, six in each stack. This is the showbread on the pure table before God and you shall add to each stack pure frankincense this shall be the memorial portion for the bread a fire offering to God he shall set it out Sabbath by Sabbath continually before God for the sons of Israel as an everlasting covenant but it shall be for Aaron and his sons and they shall eat it in a holy place for as a holy of holies it is given to him from the fire offerings of God as an everlasting dew and the son of the Israelite woman, okay, this is another story. However, he was the son of a Mitzrite man, went out into the midst of the sons of Israel, and the son of the Israelite woman and a man who was an Israelite got into a quarrel in the camp. And the son of the Israelite woman pronounced the name of God in full and blasphemed. He, he pronounced the name, which is, we're not supposed to pronounce the name, and he blasphemed Hashem and they brought him to Moshe the name of his mother was Shulamit the daughter of Divri the tribe of Dan they placed him into custody so that he, they might receive an explanation according to the utterance of God and God spoke to Moshe saying take the blasphemer out of the camp and let all those who heard it lean their hands upon his head and let the whole community stone him to death. So this was the first time that you had somebody receiving a death penalty for the blasphemy of Hashem's name. And he was speaking the unspoken name of Hashem. And this is something that we only do, the, only, the priests could only do this in the Holy of Holies, something that was sacred. And you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Anyone, Anyone who blasphemes his God shall bear his, must bear his sin. And one who is in blasphemy pronounces the name God, Hashem, in full shall be put to death. This is where we get the prohibition against speaking the name of Hashem or even trying to pronounce yud We do not pronounce it because we could say it in a vain way in a frivolous way 
there's a danger of that because this is the highest holiest name of Hashem so we don't speak it in any of the names of Hashem we have to be very very careful in pronouncing them or writing them that they might not be erased in any way because they cannot be any profaning any making ordinary understand the word profaning making ordinary the name of Hashem so they're supposed to pelt him with stones and put him to death and if one strikes down a human being he shall be put to death but one who strikes down an animal creature must make compensation for it a creature as compensation for a creature and one who inflicts an injury upon his neighbor then as he has done so shall it be done to him compensation of a fracture for a fracture compensation of an eye for an eye compensation of a tooth for a tooth even as he inflicts an injury upon a man so shall it be given by him one who strikes down an animal must pay for it one who strikes down a man shall be put to death you shall have one standard of right for him who has entered from abroad and for the native born for I God am your God Moshe spoke to the sons of Israel and they took the blasphemer out of the camp and stoned him to death the sons of Israel did as God had commanded Moshe and this is the end of the Parsha we have three minutes so if anybody has a comment and I do understand that the story that we just read about the blasphemer there's a lot of midrash about it and I didn't have time to go into it so I didn't even try but there is a lot more to that and maybe sometime we'll be able to go into it but I was trying to cover some of the things that I thought like the, about the holidays that I thought might not be familiar to everyone and so I wanted to spend a little bit more time on that and later we might get to the story about the blasphemer because blaspheming the name of Hashem is extremely serious I mean you can understand why murder is serious that's a, that, that's just an obvious thing but blaspheming Hashem is not quite so obvious to us because it's not right here close to us we have to realize that right here on the same almost like in the same breath as he's talking about blasphemy he talks about murder he talks about things that incur a death penalty but then he also talks about things that do not like if you killed an animal you're not going to die for that you're not supposed to die for that so he's, he's bringing the idea of balance do not kill a person for stealing an animal but when we read the Ten Commandments we say it says thou shalt not steal that is a capital crime it's not talking about stealing goods it's talking about stealing a human being it's talking about kidnapping so you have to realize that to understand those things fully you need the oral law you need Midrashim you need the commentary of the, of the rabbis from the Talmud and so on to fully understand exactly what is being spoken of in that context and why here it's a death penalty and over here it isn't you shall not steal over here it's a death penalty 
And then over here, when it talks about stealing, it, it talks about compensation. So you have to realize that there's no contradictions in the Torah. So if in one place it says there's a death penalty, then it's talking about something else other than stealing goods. And this is where we get that fullness of the oral law, that it fills in those blank places for us. So it helps our understanding. So anyway, I'm thank very happy that you joined me tonight. And next is going to be um, Anna, and she's going to be teaching her class. I'm very happy to see her here. And I encourage everybody to stay tuned for her class because it is very, very good. And I think that all of us will learn a lot. And, and I've been encouraged by how she even builds on what I say and then brings it into a, a more um, a healing the things I'm talking about she takes it to a next level so thank you very much for joining me and I'm going to give the microphone over to Anna and I hope you will stay tuned and listen to her okay thank you so much Uh, I just uh, I couldn't type and do anything while I was loading the presentation so I apologize thank you Mary so much for your wonderful show it was uh, was really wonderful, and I'm uh, going really to pick up what you've said about the counting of the armor today. Uh, does any everybody hear me? Is my microphone working? Okay, good. Okay, so uh, I'm going to talk today on Lagba Omer, which is the 30, uh, 33 day of uh, of Omer. And uh, going from there, uh, going showing how this connects us to Israel and how this connects us also to our body. Um, I called it being back on the road over the left top, preparing for Shavuot. Um, well, well, spare with me a little bit. I will explain it a little bit, <laughs> this title. So, uh, next slide here. Uh, this is uh, the commandment in the how it is written in the Torah. It's, uh, it says, "And you shall count from the day after the holiday." Uh, it's actually written the Shabbat, but uh, it's meant the after the holiday, the first of Pesach, from the day on which you are bringing the Omer Hatnufar. You know, the the first of your harvest. Um, seven full weeks shall you shall you uh, be well shall you count until the day after the seventh day of the seventh week, you shall count seven weeks, seven full weeks shall it be, until the day after the seventh day of the seventh week shall you count. That means seven times seven is 49, and the day afterwards is the 50th day. This is all written in Leviticus uh, chapter 23, verse 15, if anybody wants to look it up in his own translation. Okay, so... Oops. Uh, well, somehow we have to move uh, move around. It got a little bit thick, I see, <laughs> this time. I I apologize for all these technical problems. Um, I didn't realize that it comes out so, so big. So actually, you but uh, you can uh, divide the time of uh, between Pesach and Shavuot, the time of counting the armor, into two parts. Um, the first part is until Lagba Omer, and the second part is from Lagba Omer to Shavuot. Uh, actually, 
to be a little bit more exact, the time until Lev, the 32nd of, uh, of Omer. You know, in, in Hebrew we also express um, numbers by, by using the letters. So uh, 32 would be taking the Lamed, which represents 30, plus that, which represents the 2. So 32 days. And, uh, and, and uh, if you take these two letters together, it says less, less, it says hard. It will be important, uh, as I will um, explain in a little while. This is the first uh, uh, part of it. And then we, are, we have 17 more days left of the 49 days that we are counting until Shavuot. So from the day of Lakba Omer, of the 33rd day of Omer, until Shavuot, we have 17 uh, days left. Um, if, it, if you take um, the word tov, which means good, it, uh, it's, um, if, and you take it as numbers, uh, you would have 9 plus 6 plus, uh, plus 2, which makes 17. So um, you have 32 plus 17 days, counting the, uh, counting the omelet. This is really important because, um, because it's, uh, it's two important stages of bringing us back to the road of serving Hashem. Let me go to the next slide. Mm. Here we see uh, again, if you remember, uh, we have talked about this slide before, uh, in the Jewish year and our body in the, during the year. Um, we, let me take the pointer. Okay. Pesach, um, we are actually getting rid of all those forces which put us into slavery, which enslave us. Um, which are actually uh, uh, Pharaoh and his ministers. Um, it has a lot to do with the liver, as we will see uh, shortly on later in the course. Uh, but it doesn't really get us back to our own path, because uh, it's, I mean it frees up of those influences, but it doesn't uh, really uh, bring us back. Um, but after Pesach, we have to start working on it to get back to our really own individual path to serve Hashem. And in order to find that path, we have to work very hard. We have, on, we have to work on our character traits. We have, every day we count, we, we work on one spe specific part of our character. And uh, we have to learn to listen to our own voice and get more independently from our surroundings, from our friends, from our parents, from from our boss and uh, everybody that wants to enslave us. Enslave us, uh, well, it sounds, uh, sounds a little bit hard to say our friends want to enslave us, but often we listen to our friends and, uh, because we want to get their love, so we do things that actually are not uh, connected to, our, to what our inner voice is saying. So it brings us a little bit off of our own path. So when in order to serve really Hashem, we have to go back. Okay, so we are right now here at Lakba Omer. We, we have uh, counted the 32 days of, of the left part. It's uh, what it says, saying heart. Heart is representing that part of us which is really our own, uh, our own part, our own mission in our life. And uh, then the rest of it, when once we get back, we have really to prepare for the for, uh, for to, to receive the Torah. Um, to uh, 
to walk in Hashem's way and to to listen to His voice, what He is uh, having to say to us, and th- that's how we get a good heart in order to get the Torah. Uh, let me get to this next slide. Okay, this is the path of, of our life, right? When we are born, we summer. Yeah, uh, as little children. We are so dependent on our parents. We have to give their love. We have to get their. Uh, they have to feed us, they have, so, and they have to give us a certain degree of bitachon of security. So, in order to get all this, we are ready to do many things that are not really ours, uh, that uh, are not really uh, uh, connected, uh, connecting us to our own mission in our lives. So sometimes our parents want some something else. They want us. Or to be a orichtin, a, a lawyer, or a doctor, or anything. But I'm, I want to be a painter. So very often uh, we go off in order to get the love of our parents, of our friends, doing things not really connected to our own mission. And then at some stage we realize, no, that's not, that's not me. We have to, to get back uh, what really my mission in this world is, what Hashem wants to do, and mostly. We not only go to here to the middle, we really go over to the other side uh, and uh, in order to compensate because uh, if, we co- if we would continue this way, we would uh, some at some stage fall because it's not our way. So we go to the other side to compensate and so we're going around with crunches um, uh, trying to make compensations. Um, and, but during life, we are trying to get closer and closer, uh, listening less and less to all those forces which are actually uh, enslaving us, not bringing us uh, off of our own road until we really um, are so so close and and until we really meet Hashem uh, when we we are really fulfilling our own mission. Okay. Um, oh yeah. Well, I go back to this uh, last slide. Um, this slide also is showing one thing. It shows that our um, consciousness of time in Judaism is not only this circular. If I go back to this slide, you know, but if you look at this, it seems like it's an ever-recurring, uh, everlasting circle. Every year the same. Well, it's not quite so. It's a uh, this is more the consciousness of time that uh, the cultures in the in the east or cultures uh, that are not uh, not uh, let's say developed like the the western cultures which have more uh, uh, time consciousness which is uh, the consciousness of a line but time consciousness is really combining both of them it's, uh, and the result of this, of combining the line and the circle, is the spiral. Um, it's, uh, there is some uh, some movement forward, even though every year we're coming to the same point where the same energy comes into this world. But uh, it's still we are uh, uh, we are uh, if Pesach is here, then we uh, next year. We are on a different level. We are we are working on a different level, and uh, so we're cl- getting closer and closer to Hashem during our life. It's not something that is repeating without any advancement. Okay, this is 
in real what is happening in reality um, we are getting off the line right and um, then on Pesach uh, actually we get freed of this force which is enslaving us and uh, what is happening um, then during the uh, next 32 days of the Omer time we are trying to get back to, uh, to that line and uh, then once we get back once we found ourselves back then we have to prepare for Shavuot there's a story that Rabbi Shimon on uh, Rabbi Shimon by Yochai whose uh, yata it, uh, it is uh, what, uh, what we celebrate on Lagba Ome he was uh, before he died he was uh, collecting all his uh, Talmidim, all his students and he was telling everybody what his real mission is in this world because Rabbi Shimon had this inside eye. He was really seeing the inner essence of everybody and uh, not looking only on the outside. So he was able to see what every person has to do in, in, in this world, in his, this life. So he was telling everybody what he has to do in this world and from there they could go, go along. Today we don't have a Rabbi Shimon who is telling us, but everybody has Rabbi Shimon inside of him. <laughs> um, because... Uh, you know all the all the big persons we we meet in the in the Torah, all all the avod, all the all the all the forefathers and the foremothers, they are actually also we have them in, inside, and we have to discover them because uh, from from the Torah we can learn how to how to do the work, how to get uh, through this life. And uh, Rabbi Shimon, who is not in the Torah because he has lived after. Uh, after the Torah was uh, was written, and he was uh, he lived during the uh, after Rabbi Akiva, which uh, who he was a student of Rabbi Akiva, which uh, who was living during the merit of Bar Kokhba to the Bar Kokhba um, revolt, which was one from 135 to 138. So uh, uh, from we don't have Rabbi Shimon today, but still we have this energy in, in us that knows what is really our inner self and we can get back there through the inner work on our midot, on our character traits uh, and uh, that's what we are doing in order to prepare to receive the Torah okay let's go to the next slide here it is Okay, what are the forces actually that are enslaving us? Um, well, we are not uh, at Pesach right now, but uh, if we would, we would talk a little bit uh, more in detail uh, about Pesach. And once we get there next year, we will for sure, uh, hopefully if there is a, is a class, um, then we will talk about this very much in detail. But um, Pharaoh is rep representing the big enslaver. Um, we have seen in the other slide that Pharaoh very often is compared to the liver. Um, in, the, in the Talmud, uh, it's very often it, uh, it talks about it how he, how Pharaoh is is compared with uh, hardening his uh, his heart. And hardening, we, we said also last week, hardening is uh, the same word as liver. Kavet, lechavet, kavet. It's the same same word. Uh, and if also if you look in the Torah, how often this word is appearing in these chapters, 
It's really amazing. Pharaoh and, and the whole experience of, of Mitzrayim, of, of slavery, is very much uh, connected to liver. Uh, but it's not the Pharaoh alone. Pharaoh has also his ministers. Um, and we, uh, the Torah is talking about Saha Tapachim and Saha Mashkim. You know, the cook, the baker, and the, the butler. I mean, I, I saw in, uh, in the translation in the internet uh, of Saha Mashkim, they translate it as butler. It's actually the one that is giving the wine to, to Pharaoh. Um, so these are his assistants in enslaving the, uh, the, uh, the patients or the, uh, the uh, everybody. Uh, it's a, an experience of everybody, um, the slavery and how to get out there. It's a process of, a process of healing and we will, during our seminary, we often come back to this uh, point. Um, you know, what is the, the essence of the liver? The liver is uh, getting up, the, the liver of flower, they are getting up in the morning and are asking three questions. What can I eat today? I mean, uh, you know, all these um, questions, all, all the thoughts, well, how can I survive? I have to make a living. Uh, um, and if I'm not uh, doing this now, even though I don't want to do it, uh, uh, if I can't leave this job, even it's uh, enslavering me and uh, I, uh, it has nothing to do with me, I won't be able to live in this world. It's really very much connected to being afraid. Also, the second question is, um, is who can, who wants to eat me? So it's also very uh, uh, a world of distrust. And also, uh, the liver power is asking, how can I reproduce myself? His whole life, life is is circling around these uh, three questions. So. Um, uh, this is um, the world of Mitzrayim, of what is, uh, what is uh, enslaving us, what is Mitzrayim, it means making, uh, there's the word of Tsar, of, of narrow, it's, uh, in, in, it's narrowing uh, our, our life. And getting out of Egypt, out of uh, Mitzrayim, means getting out of these uh, factors. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, I'm sure I I know you have talked with Miriam about um, the tree of life. Uh, it's something very important. I have long thought: should I do it? Uh, should I do? Shouldn't I do it? I have decided at the end that I will do it, uh, especially in the in the class during June. And actually, I will witness for every of. Uh, every Svira I will uh, witness a whole shiur, a whole class, because uh, there's so much in it, because it's so much connected also to Israel and also to our body, because uh, every one of the of the lower Svirot is connected to one of the figures from the Torah. You know, Chesed is um, connected to Abraham, Kura is connected to Yitzhak, Tiferet is connected to uh, to Yaakov, Israel, uh, Netzach, Moshe, uh, Hod, Aaron, uh, Yisod, Yosef, 
and Mahud David HaMelech. So we can really uh, connect to Israel by by really learning the uh, inner essence of this uh, tree of life. And also it connects us to our body because we see in our body this all represented. Um, and I want to talk today a little bit because it has a lot to do with Rabbi Shimon and with uh, Lakba Ome. I want to talk about the two Sfirot Dad and Tiferet, uh, where it is uh, located in our body. Um, you see here, here uh, I've tried to draw, I apologize about my drawing. Uh, um, the, uh, this is the brain, this is the kidneys, and this is supposed to be the uh, Amutashitra, the uh, spinal uh, column and from there going out all the nerves and this black little spot is the um, brainstem so the sphera of of uh, that, of knowledge which is this one, which is the connecting one between the upper sphera and the lower sphera is uh, located here in the brainstem and in the, uh, in the spinal cord and there is another location which is in the throat, in the neck. And the, the, ne the neck is something very tsar. So we see already that this has a lot to do with, with the Mitzrayim because if Pharaoh is sitting there, then nothing from the, uh, from the brain can get down to our body. Nothing from the upper spherot can get down to the lower spherot. There is no flow, no life. So um, if Pharaoh is sitting here and trying to to stop the flow, then uh, then we are really enslaved. Okay, so um, let me talk a little bit about this phenomenon of um, of uh, power sitting there. Um, well, first uh, this uh, this sphera uh, of Tiferet of well, you know, it's mostly it's translated as beauty, but it's not an uh, exact uh, uh, translation because really what it is, is it is the connection, the result, the the child of the marriage of of these upper two sfirot, which are called chokma and bina, um, uh, wisdom and uh, uh, wisdom and uh, contemplation. Um, it's like uh, the masculine and the feminine side. If they come together, then uh, uh, then we get the sphera of of that of knowledge. Let me just uh, take this opportunity to talk a little bit about the uh, in general about the the sphera because not everybody might have heard it from Miriam and uh, might not be familiar. And if you don't understand it the first time, don't worry. Oh, very good, Chesed. A nice understanding. That's good. Um, better translation. So there are two ways to look on, on the upper three spherot. One is to, to count the Keter, the crown, the uh, Chokmah, the wisdom, and the Bina, the understanding. As Chesed said, it's a better translation. Um, and the other way is to say uh, to see. Chokhmah, uh, Bina, and Dad. Why are, are, am I not talking about this one? And I left it white because it's really the Keter is really something that is out of our consciousness. 
um, let's say somebody wants to build a house. It all starts here with a thought. Somebody has a thought, the vision, a house is standing there in the brain. Um, and uh, usually it's uh, the guys, the men that have these ideas of, of some vision. And then their wives are coming and saying, you know, you're a little bit crazy. It's, there's no house standing there. The house that you're seeing doesn't exist. If we really wanted to have a house there, you have to do some planning. You have to to uh, um, uh, get all the um, uh, how do you call it in English? You know, all the people to to build it. You have to make a good planning. The ar uh, architect. You have planning in time, in in space, or how how you're organizing everything. There's a lot of things to do before you uh, you can build that house. Only if these two are getting together, the, the vision and the understanding how to do it, blueprint, exactly, Miriam, thank you. Um, uh, if you if to get it into the blueprint and then, uh, um, then you can get it into this world. And this sphere of knowledge is actually not completely connected only to the upper spherot, it's also a connecting piece to the lower spherot. Um, it's bringing things down from the brain into the body or from uh, from the upper world into the lower world. And then we have the seven lower uh, spherot, which are also called midot. And each of these uh, spherot is uh, connected to one of the forefathers of, for the, of the important persons from the from the Torah, as I just have explained. So, um, uh, well, Chesed, <laughs> Chesed uh, is the um, Chesed is the, uh, uh, the 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 that is giving. Uh, you know, with, uh, the one Abraham who really wants to give uh, to the whole world. He's a cosmopolite. He's uh, making a lot of converts. He's traveling to every place, uh, sitting in every place, loving kindness, very nice chesed. Chesed, um, <laughs> of course it's coming from you because uh, it's your name. It's probably your inner essence. I, f I can feel that. <laughs> um, it's uh, very difficult to teach on, on the internet because you don't see the people. You have no idea to, uh, who is sitting next to you. And I really encourage everybody to write to me and uh, tell me a little bit about you. But I would really love to hear about who you are and uh, because then I also can uh, can direct more what I'm going to tell you, uh, more according to who you are. I just write my email. Take this opportunity. Okay, so please. <laughs> um, okay, this is Chesed. Uh, opposite of Chesed is um, the is Kvura. You don't only have to give, you also have to know exactly when to give, how much to give, to whom to give, if to give at all. Uh, for example, sometimes there are people that really don't have vessels to get all this all this chesed, this loving kindness. For example, uh, you meet a beggar on, on the street and uh, you give him some money out of pity and the next day you see he's uh, sitting there with all this vodka. And so he said, oh, what have, have I done? I mean, it, uh, he doesn't have the vessels to really use this. So 
um, to put it together, the uh, the Chesed and the Quran, and to come to Tifer, the the mostly translated as beauty, but it's really much more. It's the the result of the marriage of these two. Um, it's uh, really just to give him something in order to that he can really uh, suppose the balance, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I can give this person uh, a job. Right? Let's say it's so easy. It's, uh, in real life, it's not so easy. I know. The Rambam is saying, don't give him a fish. Giving a how do you call it? A, a angle to 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 fish it out of the of the uh, lake. Um, I don't remember the English word. I'm sorry. Um, so you should help him to. Uh, oh, Miriam is writing it. <laughs> Fishing pole, right? Giving a fishing pole so that he can uh, get the fish by himself, that he can help himself. This is the highest form of uh, of chesed, of give, of giving, of tzedakah, uh, to combine chesed and uh, and kvura. And then we have netzach hod yisod, which I'm not going right in. I, I com uh, will concentrate today a little bit on this and these two, uh, and. At the end, we have Mahut, the, um, the the kingdom. It's really it, this is the goal to get everything to the Mahut, to the into the kingdom, into this life. Um, okay, we see another interesting thing. Um, there are two two uh, two lines which are disconnecting things. One is the line that is really disconnecting the upper Sfirot from the lower Sfirot the upper vessels from the lower vessels and the other one is this line uh, which in the body is uh, really the diaphragm we have the same principles of uh, right and left and the middle the balance also in the lower part right and left and the balance uh, so very often diseases are developed when one of the side is uh, not balanced Often diseases are a state of imbalance, and the path of healing is getting back to the balance. Okay, uh, that's a few words in general on this uh, tree of life. We have really there's so much in it. Um, we have really to get into each of and every one of those in detail uh, and witness for that the whole class during the class of uh, of June. Okay. Um, so uh, we said the Tfira of Dar is located in the brainstem, in the Amuta Shitra, in the uh, spinal column, and in the neck, in the throat. And when Pharaoh is sitting there, he is really is closing up here. Because why? Pharaoh, as we said before, he's so afraid. He, he has the task really to get you through life, through the day to the next day. Um, and um, so he he doesn't like all this influence coming from above, all this intui intuition, and uh, he standing here at the door and trying to cut it off um, because uh, he he's afraid. He does thinks he I cannot exist if I let come thi things through. So he tries to to talk to the heart and say, listen to me. Um, what I am saying is the real thing. Don't listen to anything else. Um, oh, thanks, Miriam. 
Um, so listen to what uh, I have uh, to say, um, and uh, uh, and uh, follow follow my suggestions. So don't don't be for real. Don't don't uh, discontinue this job, even it's it's not your job. Even you are a painter and you're working as a as a lawyer. Um, don't don't do do what we swear because you won't be able to to live. We won't be able to make a living. Things like this are this kind of. Uh, of course, there are a whole set of other questions. Everybody in his own uh, field. Um, so Pesach, we said we are getting rid of this power and we are getting connected. Get, getting back the connection of above and below. Um, uh, also, we see the word Melech, a lot of Roy, right, Alan and Aline? Um, the liver is the, uh, the organ which is a lot uh, concerned with worrying. It's also connected to the spleen. Actually, the, the organ that most is connected with the, uh, this uh, worrying and uh, all the thinking, I, I can't make it, it's, it's the spleen. And as we, as we saw before, the spleen is one of the ministers. Let me just go back to that. Here, um, the cook. You know, spleen and stomach—they belong to 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 the cook. <laughs> it's actually one of the ministers. It's amazing how how the rabbis were really connecting all these things to the to the or uh, similar or to the various organs. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Okay, and uh, we know from Chinese medicine that a lot of of diseases from the liver are uh, connected to the spleen and the stomach because if the liver is overacting and uh, it's not flowing freely, then it's it's uh, getting its energy into the into the stomach and uh, stopping the stomach to work instead of uh, getting things the food down. It's uh, it's going up and this will make you vomit, will cause you uh, nausea and uh, things like that and so uh, we will go into detail when we talk about uh, diseases not uh, right now but uh, it's causing a lot of diseases also we can see if, if, we, uh, if we talk about the liver that the liver uh, in Chinese medicine the liver meridian is going uh, uh, the inner inner branch of it is going in front of the throat and the uh, the meridian of the gallbladder, which is connected, which is the part of the liver, uh, is going in uh, on the opposite side, on the uh, on the on the neck. So it's really the liver can also physically, from the anatomy, can uh, can strangle you, and uh, so causing that nothing comes through. Okay, I wanted to say. Making Hashem Melech in your life, uh, making Him King over your life, is uh, really to connect your brain with your heart and with your kidneys. And uh, you see this in the in the word Melech. Melech means King. And uh, if you take the first uh, letters of of brain, which is Moach, the first letter of the word Lev, which is heart, um, and the first letter of Kidneys, which is klayot, um, you get mem, lamech, chas, so melech, um, which means king. So really connecting all three means making a shem melech in your life. Uh, 
Uh, it's also very nice to take this uh, for med meditation, uh, whoever does meditation, um, just getting a straight line into into your into your day. Um, okay, so this uh, is the sphere of dart. Now, where is the sphere of? Yeah, thanks, Chrisette. Uh, this is the where is the sphere of Tiferet located? Well, it's right here. It's the heart. Tiferet, we said, is uh, Yaakov, is Israel, and Israel is the heart, the heart of the nations, the heart of everything. It's connected with everything. All Chesed is connected with this. The Kvura is connected with this. Netzach, they are all connected with this. Um, it's also it's uh, it's the continuation of this middle path. It's coming from from the Keter that we really don't have any consciousness, but it's uh, Hashem really putting things uh, uh, influence in us through the dark, getting it down to the uh, through the knowledge, getting it down to down to the tifer, the beauty. Translated, I don't have a better translation, but it's uh, it's not what it is. It's not uh, not beauty. <laughs> um, down to the salt, uh, you know, the foundation, and down to the malchut, which is the goal. This is uh, Israel. It's, it's also the name Israel means Yashar El. It's uh, straight, straight from 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 Hashem to us and to this world. So this is the heart, and uh, we really have to connect to the heart of uh, of the world, the heart of the of of mankind, which is Israel. Um, because otherwise we are not going to be in good health. So let's go to the next. I think what I wanted to say on this. Ah, no, there's something else I wanted to say. Yeah, I still have some time. Okay. Um, here, I go back to the upper fjord, Bina and Chochma uh, and, and Bina. You know, it's often uh, compared to the relationship between men and women we see. In, in Judaism, in the inner, uh, inner side of the Torah, in the in, in the Kabbalah, it's really on one level. It's not one above the other. Uh, it's two sides that are coming to, together. And also, you know, today in Israel, most people use the word Baal, which means uh, he's the owner, the, the, the husband is the owner of the women. The word Baal is not appearing as a as a word for Isha for, for for the women in the Torah at all, it only appears the first time in the Talmud, and the Talmud is already uh, written in the Galut in the Exile. So um, the word uh, the, o the the man as being the owner of of the women is all is a thing of of the Exile. It's not of a thing of Eretz Israel of the Torah of Eretz Israel. And amazingly, the first ones who realized that and who stopped calling um, their wives, um, their, uh, the, uh, the, the, the women who stopped calling their, their husbands Baal, were the non-religious Zionists, the kibbutznikim in the, uh, the beginning of the century, they really uh, consciously, they took this vocabulary out of their consciousness and called him Ha'isheli, uh, my man, not uh, not my my owner. And today, still, most people are calling their husbands uh, uh, Baal, my owner. But I really think they they had a good point. The the first Zionists. 
Um, okay. So this is what I wanted to say on this. Okay. How do we get everything down? It's uh, the by the means of uh, learning. Yes. Learning by also by um, by uh, sometimes by by tefillah by prayer by uh, me meditation also. Um, Okay, and uh, what I wanted to say, to listen to our own inner voice, which is not the voice, the loud voice of the liver, we really have to uh, to get rid of pharaohs and uh, listen to what is coming from above. This, uh, this inner voice, if we define it, it's the vibration that is coming, between that is uh, produced by the uh, vibration between the brain and the heart, by the connection of these two. If they are connected, we can hear our inner voice. And it's a very, very small voice. We have to be very careful to listen to it. And often we don't hear it. We, we only notice it when we go off the, off the way. And then by, by going back, and at the end we define it with a zigzag, with, uh, as we see, saw before. Okay, let me go to the next slide. Okay, let me say a few things now about the Bidav Tif Eret, this one, and uh, the right and left side. We, uh, I said before that our forefathers um, are connected to to the Midot, but not uh, not only the forefathers, also also the foremothers. Um, in order to be f really complete, the forefathers had to have a women that is uh, really fitting to them. So while Abraham was completely on the right side, he was completely giving, he was chesed, pure chesed, pure loving kindness, he had a wife Sarah who was completely on the uh, side of Gvura, of Din, uh, which is a very, very important midah, uh, uh, a very important uh, trait, because you can't just give as I, as, uh, without uh, limitation, it's uh, leads to a lot of uh, problems if you if you are not not uh, balancing it so Sarah was compensating Abraham the same happened with Yitzhak with Isaac uh, he was marrying Rebecca Yitzhak was completely on the left side you know he was uh, the one that was uh, uh, was on in the Akedar in the binding um, and uh, he was a very strong person he, he had a very clear side what uh, what needs to be done and he was not uh, going all over the places he was the only one of the forefathers who never left Eretz Israel once he had the idea to go down to uh, Egypt but Hashem didn't let him he said don't go there uh, and uh, he Dafka, he had to marry somebody from the other side he had to marry some, uh, somebody from the side of Chesed which is Rebecca uh, Rizka Rivka was uh, completely like Abraham. Uh, she was. Uh, we know that from the story, uh, if you remember, at the Be'er, at the well. Uh, if you remember, when Eliezer came to find a wife for Yitzhak, he said, "I want a wife who has this character trait, who has the the giving uh, character trait." And he said, "I want somebody who not only gives water to me, but also will give water to my camels." So he wanted really this 
this complete chesed. Uh, and then Yaakov was combining both sides, um, the right side, the chesed and the kvua. So he actually would have needed a ribbon that would uh, also comprise both sides. But he had actually two women. It said, uh, Yaakov, Yosef, Ohalim. Yaakov was sitting in, in the tent, in, in plural. What tent? It was the tent of Leah and the tent of Rachel. It's a fascinating uh, thing, all these relationships, how it relates to Leah, how it relates to uh, Rachel. Um, it's this thing that we hopefully will talk a little bit about Shavuot because um, the one who is managing to combine both of them, Le the right side that Leah was uh, representing and the left side that Rachel was representing, is Ruth. And as Miriam said before, Ruth was really uh, is really connected to Shavuot. And also, uh, Shavuot is the festival of fixing our relationship between men and women. It's uh, the festival of, of marriage, of, uh, of marriage between Hashem and Israel. But also around that time, a lot of people are getting married. It's a good time to get married uh, because of that. And Ruth, because she, she combines both sides, she is able to be the mother of Mashiach, the mother of King David. Not the, the mother, but from her is uh, coming, I mean, two generations afterwards. Um, okay. Okay, we talked about uh, above, below. We're getting reconnected uh, the part above and below, but it's uh, not all of this. Uh, it's also a thing of inside, outside that, that need to be connected. Um, this is Mia, my my niece, when we went to on a trip into the desert, uh, and uh, if you see her, this is only her outside, but she has also. <laughs> something in, inside her uh, but you know we say normally everything is um, that is down here has something above but it's not only above it's inside uh, let me explain it what I mean a little bit in the next slide uh, yeah, we have to move around a little bit it's uh, <laughs> too big again usually mo in most of the nations uh, most of the religions have this this picture that God is really something way up high, and we are really down here, and there, there's really nearly no connection. Uh, and uh, I mean, the maximum that we get is that we get uh, some connections, and uh, uh, a long time we also believe that the only connection that we get between Hashem and uh, mankind was the Torah. Uh, but uh, it's not actually true. God is not uh, something that is uh, just above. It's also something that is uh, in inside. Um, everybody has a, a little bit of, of God inside. Uh, we say the neshama is a, is a part from from Hashem. Um, so uh, as we come to, we move to a different consciousness that is seeing more and more the inside of things. We move to that, that above and below are actually coming more together, and they are becoming inside outside. Because what you what you see on the outside is not always uh, uh, what is the true essence. For example, take the Zionists. The Zionists really they were all the first Zionists were all they grow, grew up in the Cheder, 
But then they left everything behind. They threw out the tefillim. They threw out the Shabbat. They threw out all the mitzvot, except of one thing. Interestingly, they never threw out the, the Brit Milah. The thing that is the most irrational thing. It's uh, very not to explain. They didn't uh, touch that. And then, uh, well, if they don't want to have anything to do with students, why not going to America? I mean, a lot of people also went to America, but these uh, Zionists, they went, he, he came here to Eretz Israel, and uh, they really uh, uh, built up uh, the state. And as I, uh, I said before, they had a lot of ideas. Um, they wanted to fix the relationship between men and women. They wanted to bring social uh, uh, social values into society, everything, all what uh, what they didn't find with their rabbis. So they had inside very, very advanced uh, value system. On the outside, maybe they were, were not so good from, from the Torah point of view. They didn't keep Torah. They didn't keep kosher. They didn't keep anything. But uh, on the inside, they were very good. And uh, uh, I think I mentioned it last week, the Sohar saying that Mashiach will come in a generation who is totally bad on the outside, but totally good on the inside. And this is, I think, what happened uh, with the first uh, Zionists. Uh, it was really the beginning of the process of re redemption. Okay. Um, well, a few minutes I still have. Um, this is also the what, we, what is the essence of the Shema Israel. Uh, when we say Hashem is uh, Hashem Echad, it's really one one experience. Um, it's not something that Hashem is there and we are there. It's it, we belong together. Um, and uh, also, uh, if we talk about the coming world, it's actually the world that is all the time coming. It's not something that is in another different world. It's a, a world that is coming and. Uh, the more we're getting this consciousness to see the inner essence of everything, we are, we are getting into this coming world. Uh, so this brings us a little bit, I'm talking about different consciousnesses, a little bit into closeness of what's happening in the world with the New Age movement and everything, but this is really something that is much connected to Israel. What we see today in Israel, the whole process of of teaching the inside of the Torah is actually a, a, a democratization of, of Jewish wisdom. Uh, before, I said last week, we, in order to learn all these things, you had to be a man, first of all. You had to be uh, very advanced in your learning. You had to be like 40 years old. You have to, had to be married with children. And you have to be connected to the right rabbi who would teach you. And the rabbi would decide what he teaches you, when, to, when he teaches you, and how much he teaches you. Today it's really open for everybody. And this is a process of democratization of wisdom, and it's a process of emancipation. We talked about uh, already about the, this process, uh, the relationship of, of men and women. I want to talk about it in another relationship. Um, the, this is the relationship between the teacher and the student, and uh, the, the rab and the student the rabbi and the student. In the, in the, you, we talked about it that uh, there are two Talmudim. The, yes, that's true. It's really a big blessing connecting us uh, that uh, I can talk to you. <laughs> oh, the, the internet is a great blessing. It's, 
uh, I think all this process of Gula is really uh, very much connected also to the internet. I, uh, much will much will happening through the internet also. I'm sure. May Hashem bless us all that this is only the beginning. <laughs> Okay, so um, there are two Talmudim, the um, Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. So um, the, it's called Jerusalem Talmud, but really it, it was written in Tiberias, just seven kilometers from where I'm sitting right now. <laughs> and uh, so, um, they, uh, for ex one example, how they are different is uh, in the relationship to your rav. Um, the Babylonian Talmud says if your rabbi is telling you that right is left and left is right believe him, go after him and uh, the, the exact uh, part in the Jerusalem uh, Talmud says uh, if your teacher is telling you that right is left and left is right will you listen to him? it's like a question I mean, it's giving us back our critical consciousness, and uh, I think it's something that modern, uh, modern mankind really cannot accept to accept uh, the authority of somebody which really obviously doesn't fit into their life. They want kedusha, they want holiness that's connected to their life, and uh, that means also that I, at any given time when I'm studying something, I have to connect it to where I'm standing right now and uh, taking it from there that means I have to be nice to myself and nice to be to others I don't have to go out right now in, uh, into a holy wall and, uh, because what happens if I do that then I will make this overcorrection, go over the line and it just doesn't bring me back very quickly, if I go slowly um, let me go back to the slide oh, actually I have to make sure that I get this one now It must be this one. Yeah. Um, if I go slowly from here, I just go back to the to the line, and then I go straight. If I, but if I, I I'm going into a holy holy wall, I've learned uh, now all the seven uh, seven laws and all the details, and uh, I have I have to leave everything what I've done until to, until now behind. Uh, and breaking with my friends, breaking with my parents, breaking with everything, go to the, the other extreme. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, I have to do a lot of work, but there's a possibility. Going slowly back to the line and go straight. That's much faster. <laughs> well, this is the idea. Of course, it's uh, never happened. Okay. Well, I want to make a point right now and. Uh, and ask, are there any questions? I'm sorry, I haven't asked uh, today if there are any questions. <laughs> um, or comments, reactions. Is what I'm telling you, is it uh, clear? Does it uh, give you something? Does it connect to your life?
Does anybody want to say something on the microphone? <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Well, it doesn't look like. So I want to say conclude with one last thing. We're in the role of Israel. Israel is really uh, like a catalysator of what is happening in the world. Uh, I talked about this a little bit. I mentioned the New Age uh, movement. I mean, uh, there's a lot of nonsense in in this, but um, the whole thing of that the world is standing of getting into a new consciousness. It has much to do with what's happening in Israel, and. Uh, Israel is driving things uh, forward and uh, this makes many people uncomfortable. <laughs> That's why many people also don't like Israel so much. But uh, you can compare it to a soup. Um, if you can take a pot and put everything you need for the, put in, uh, for the soup inside. Um, uh, but it's staying cold until you put a little bit of fire. And Israel is really uh, put uh, uh, the fire below the pot, uh, getting it cooked so that at the end we will have soup to, soup to eat. Uh, if uh, there are no more questions, then I will simply close, close and wish everybody a good night. And thank you so much for li listening. Thank you for joining us tonight, and I hope that you will stay tuned tomorrow night for Jack Saunders' class at 6 o'clock Central Time, 7 o'clock Eastern Time. And on Wednesday in the morning is Ashira Yosefa's class, and we're going to be replaying that tomorrow night at 8 o'clock Central Time, 9 o'clock Eastern Time, followed by replay of Jack's class. But um, Ashira's class is very, very good. I hope everybody will will come in and join us in that class on Friday night. Of course, there are no more. There are no classes on Saturday at 11 o'clock Central Time, 12 o'clock Eastern. Is Adam Penrod teaching on the seven laws of Noah? So, of course, only Noah Heights would be in that class. And then on Sunday at 11 o'clock Eastern uh, Central, 12 o'clock Central, I mean 11 o'clock Central, 12 o'clock Eastern, Adam is going to be teaching the Torah youth. So he has his own take on the Torah, which is very interesting, and he's, he's a very talented artist, and he comes with pictures and everything. So I hope that you will join us for our programming through the month of May. It's going to be a preview of the yeshiva that we're, we are planning for the month of June. And I thank you for joining us. Thank you, Anna, because your, uh, your class is very informative. I really love the concepts that you're bringing. And thank you for being one of our teachers. 
this is a real blessing to all of to us that Anna has been a has agreed to be an instructor in our class because she's bringing her knowledge as a medical doctor along with her knowledge of Torah and it's a, it's an area that of course I'm not an expert in I I can teach Torah but I don't have the expertise of, expertise of medicine and so I'm really thankful to Hashem that we have Anna teaching with us in this uh, seminar and in our yeshiva. So I bid all of you a good night, um, a good week, and I hope you have a wonderful day tomorrow. And please join us for the rest of the class. And it's a pleasure that you're with us too. And please join us for the rest of our classes through the week and through the rest of the month. And I hope that you will consider enrolling in the classes that we have for Noahide Nations Yeshiva. I hope you're enjoying this preview through the month of May. So I'm going to say good night now because I have a very early morning in the morning and I hope all of you will be with us tomorrow night. <laughs>